From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, bridging the gap between Black and Asian communities. Two communities, again, suffering significantly. This relationship has gotten stronger in Philadelphia thanks to the Mayor's Office of Public Engagement. We check in with and learn more about the Black and Gold series. The basis is understanding each other. And then we push forward, right, with the work of reconciliation. Sharaday Howard's Newsmaker is all about mental and emotional health for Chinese immigrants. She checks in with the Chinese Immigrant Family Wellness Initiative. Antoinette Lee has this week's changemaker. Carol Wong is owner of the Chinatown Learning Center. It's a healing half hour you don't want to miss, and it's straight ahead on Bridging Philly. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Last month, Mayor Jim Kenney's Office of Public Engagement launched a new initiative called the Black and Gold Series. The purpose of this is to foster conversations, promote mutual understanding, and, of course, bridge the gap between Black and Asian communities. Here to discuss this with us is Ramana Lee Akiyama, who is Director of the Office of Public Engagement, Jeanette Bavodinsi, Director of the City's Office of Youth Engagement, and Rob Busher with Japan America Society of Greater Philadelphia and the Japanese American Citizens League. Welcome to everyone. What led to the Black and Gold series to be created? Thanks, Raquel. I can get us started on this um, question. And again, uh, happy to be here to talk about such an important uh, and relevant program for the times that we're living in. At the heart of the Black and Gold program, it's really about healing, reconciliation, and building bridges between two communities that have suffered a lot historically um, and currently. So I want to step back and talk about um, the context for the program, because it's not something that just came about in the last couple of months. It's actually uh, something that we've been in conversation with for about almost two years now at this point. So in 2020, we know that the pandemic started. 2020 was a heck of a year for all of us. And in March of 2020 was really when we were starting to see the uptick of hate crimes, violence, discrimination, and um, prejudice towards people of Asian descent, particularly here in the United States. Um, And we're able to tie that back to um, comments and rhetoric that was coming out of the White House at that time. Um, And I believe that um, the the tension, it just, it started to, to really kick up at that time for the API community, the Asian American and Pacific Islander community in particular. And then um, summer of 2020, Mr. George Floyd was murdered and, um, and the Black Lives Matter movement began to really come into the forefront of many of our conversations on race in the United States. Um, and it seemed as if everyone was now um, in this racial reckoning moment. I mean, here in Philadelphia that fall, Walter Wallace Jr. was killed. Um, And so there are many conversations around police reform and undoing systemic racism, particularly anti-Black racism. Fast forward to March of 2021, which was when the Atlanta spa shootings happened, where eight people were killed, 
six of whom were Asian American women. Um, they were targeted. Those particular locations were targeted. Um, and, and so while the, the Stop API Hate movement had been building steam in 2020, it was, it was actually running parallel um, to the Black Lives Matter movement. So two communities, again, suffering significantly, but it wasn't really until the Atlanta shootings came about that there was a greater awareness around what was happening, I would say more publicly with the API community. So that's the the, um, the, the backstop of just the last two years. And then and within our own leaders, community leaders here in Philadelphia, we started to have conversations, particularly between Asian and Black community leaders, about what it would take to better support each other um, through some of these struggles. And instead of, um, you know, being in competition um, for, for recognition, how could we shift this conversation to what it really means to, to be in solidarity and to go deeper with that and to um, want to understand each other in the midst of all this heartache and devastation that was happening in both communities. We also wanted to give Rob a little bit of time because he um, wanted to talk about the historical relevance of this work again. So it's it's beyond the two years, but it's it's actually generations in the making. Sure, thanks, Ramana. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm coming here today representing the Japanese American Citizens League, which is the country's oldest and largest Asian American civil rights organization, uh, founded in 1929 as a group of, of descendants of immigrants from Japan. Uh, we've had a local chapter here since 1947 that was established by survivors of the wartime incarceration in uh, U.S. concentration camps. And along the last, you know, 75 some odd years that our organization has been here in Philly, uh, both as a local chapter and as a national chapter, Japanese Americans have been engaged in civil rights work, working hand in hand with Black-led civil rights organizations, particularly during the Black liberation movement and the civil rights era, but also more contemporarily, you know, and we kind of look at the conversations that are happening in the civil rights and social justice space. Um, Our story may be somewhat unique because as Japanese Americans, you know, my family immigrated from Hiroshima over 100 years ago and because of the prevalent racism and prejudice against the Japanese American community in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, our family was forcibly removed from their home and farm on the West Coast. And um, unfortunately, our experience in the United States has been sort of characterized by this prevalent racism against the Japanese American community. So saying that, I think that there has been a lot of solidarity that comes from shared experience and empathy across communities. And so within both my own family and certainly the larger Japanese American community that has been here for many generations, I think we see echoes of our experiences. And and obviously, no community came here like the African American community and the struggles and tribulations that African Americans adhere to this day are on an entirely other level. I think that being said, we see the echoes and the ripples, uh, our oppression rhymes. And I think it's important to kind of look at it as collective liberation work. And, you know, even from some of the elders in our community, um, you know, JACL was at the March on Washington, invited by Dr. King himself. Uh, We have local JACL chapter member, Ed Nakawatase, who dropped out of college at Rutgers and went on a Greyhound bus to Atlanta to volunteer with SNCC and uh, at the height of the civil rights movement. 
another uh, former member uh, who has sadly passed away, Kiyoshi Kuromiya, was deeply connected to Dr. King. He was a, a, uh, his personal associate uh, and actually cared for Dr. King's children at the, the family funeral. So these kinds of connections run deep. And I think particularly in the context of the work that JACL has been doing in the past few years, even before the George Floyd uprising, there has been a lot of allyship uh, between Black Lives Matter and JACL on sort of a nationwide level. And then locally uh, during the pandemic, but even before then, JACL had been very involved with uh, trying to end immigrant detention at the Burke's Detention Center. It happened to be that during the summer of 2020, nine of the 12 families that were being held in detention there were Haitian refugees. And so the kind of intersection of immigrant rights movement and the fight for black liberation and ongoing black lives movements uh, sort of intersected with a lot of the work that we were doing as a local chapter. And, uh, you know, these are conversations that have sort of contributed to some of the programs that we're in development with right now, and also the work that we're doing with the Japan America Society and the city of Philadelphia through the Black and Gold series. Rob, thank you so much for that insight. Actually, I'm glad you shared that. Some of that I, I was not aware of. And of course, you know, the civil rights movement, not exclusive to African-Americans, of course, neither is racism. And um, there definitely is a strength in that solidarity and recognizing that, you know, we have more in common than we do, than we don't. Uh, so that I, I'm glad you, you brought all of that out. Thank you for that. Um, and of course, uh, Ramana, as you said, we can, of course, go into what sparked things here in Philadelphia. And that, of course, is where Jeanette got involved because this um, dealt with kids on a SEPTA bus. Tell us a little bit about that particular issue. Yeah, so the SEPTA incident was incredibly painful um, for many in our city. It was an emotionally charged incident because it did involve youth. It involved youth in pain and crisis. Um, many people were upset and scared. The parent and student population at Central High School um, were highly engaged afterwards in wanting to make sure that situations like this wouldn't happen again. Um, and students and members of the community actually marched from City Hall up to um, the school administration building at 440 North Broad, where a multiracial group of students met with administrators presented their demands and what they really emphasized um, at that moment was they wanted the opportunity to learn about each other's histories. So I'll turn it over to Jeanette um, to talk about um, how, how she saw the work of the Office of Youth Engagement being involved in this conversation. And I think it's important to note for those who may not remember that particular issue or story what happened on the SEPTA bus, uh, it was a group of young Black girls um, essentially attacking uh, a group of young Asian kids. Um, and they were charged with uh, bias intimidation. There were racial slurs being yelled, so on and so forth. So that became a huge issue and, like you said, very painful um, and lent itself for conversations and healing. So, Jeanette, if you can continue to talk about, you know, what happened there and, and how did you engage conversations, especially with the kids with, with this, with respect to what happened on the train? Yeah, I think too. And I, I want to thank, you know, Romana for inviting us to space and um, thank you, Soror, for, uh, for hosting this. Um, 
what we see, especially in young people, right, is everything that adult populations go through, right, exacerbated and magnified. Right. And so these two communities that Rob put so, you know, he he shed light on our histories, our collective histories, have been historically marginalized, uh, historically overlooked, um, experienced poverty, experienced systemic racism um, at some of the highest levels that we see nationwide. Um, and they live alongside each other. Right. So there's this proximity thing that happens between Black and Asian communities that it is inevitable that our, our issues, our pains, um, the things that we go through will overlap, right? And so what we saw on the train, while there was a terrible incident that happened between, especially touching to my heart, young women, those are two communities that are in pain. And what happens is you, there comes a boiling point and then these incidents happen. So what we tried to do at the Mayor's Office of Youth Engagement, and we were so thankful for Romana for building this series, and we were so excited to kick it off. Our first event, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later, Sora, but um, anti-Blackish, right? Because we want to talk about how anti-Black racism really is sort of sits at the foundation of a lot of a lot of these pains, right? And by anti-black racism, I mean the way in which society treats blackness. So not just black people, things that they ascribe to blackness, whether it's phenotype, whether it's culturally, whether it's uh, you know, the way you show up in the world, whether it's color, right? The way you show up and how this uh, how society treats you, it affects all of us. And so I've been so inspired. Um, I recently reached out to um Central's API Union. They those young people just had an event without adults in the room with the Black Student Union at 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 um at Central High School to talk about these issues. Because the thing about young people, which excites me, and I talk to Ramon about this all the time, the jadedness isn't there yet. The walls aren't there yet. They take incidents that happen and they're able to isolate them and say, that happened there. So how do we move forward and how do we progress, right? And so this work that Romana, you know, is building up from an institutional perspective for the Office of Public Engagement to engage in, it's already been happening. Mm -hmm. It's been happening. And what we're trying to do, you know, we say often in our office that we are best as conveners. So what we're trying to do is create spaces to amplify the work that the community is already doing and to show them that we are hearing and we're listening and we want everybody to hear and and and, and understand the work that you're doing and I, I think I have to say I think it's so important representation isn't everything we we know that especially as folks of color but it is so important that at the seat of this work is an Asian American woman, right? Leading the Office of Public Engagement at this specific moment. And I know we'll talk about this later, but she is community, right? And oftentimes when we come into government, I think people forget or think that we're not community anymore, that we represent institution. This woman's story is important. That's why she brought it to the table, right? The the people she knows, her her children, her family, right? She brought forth the stories of, you know, and her history. Um, and so I'm so glad this is being addressed at a, a larger scale. And we're happy that the Office of Youth Engagement can be involved in this work. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the fact that the wall is not up yet, because it's so easy uh, for any group to want to harbor resentment and lash out at everyone that's in that particular group. But that didn't happen, so it lent itself for the difficult conversations to take place. I would like to hear a little bit about those conversations. 
And so we ho- we hosted Anti Blackish um, at the end of Black History Month. Um, the event was open completely to the public, and we wanted to talk to a little bit. So what we try to do in the Office of Youth Engagement, since we're dealing with young people, and when I when I say young people, we, we mentioned Gen Z, which are um, residents aged like twelve to twenty four. Right. So whenever we come together and convene them, we want to do the work of defining what we're talking about first, because oftentimes when, you know, adults convene for community groups or meetings and stuff like that, they just get right into the subject matter. Right. Mm -hmm. And what you missed completely was the foundation of why are we here? What are we talking about? Because people operate off of different definitions of things all the time. So what we wanted to do first was define anti-Blackness for the community that we were talking to so that we were all working with the same base point. And so how we defined that and how we were conversing about anti-Blackness was that society will treat anyone or any person, any being who has a proximity to Blackness in a specific way that is intercommunity between Black folks and for other folks of color, right? And so when we were talking about this in the context of the Black and Gold series, it's interesting because um, I've had multiple conversations with young people who are Southeast Asian descent, right? Mm-hmm. And if you know a lot of anything about those communities, I'm talking about um, our Cambodian residents, Filipino residents, some of those communities have a greater proximity to Blackness than some other Asian communities, right? So s- hearing from those young people and talking to them about how anti-Blackness affects them. They are not African-American, right? But some of those issues, some of those stigmas still fall upon them in the same way. And so we wanted to have anti-Blackish anchor the mayor's office of youth engagement work in this way so that, you know, Romana talked about the the basis is understanding each other. Why would something like what happened on SEPTA earlier last year, later last year happen? Why? What are the stories? What is the genealogy? What are the uh, generational traumas that bring something like that to the table. And so when we define those spaces, um, especially like using something like anti-Blackish and going forward, we want to do something similar for the Asian community and now defining what an AAPI um, young person, a Gen Z resident, who is that? What do they look like? What do they care about, right? So that people in the room then can understand young Asian folks. And then we push forward, mm-hmm. right? With the work of reconciliation um, coming together. So, uh, Raquel, can I add to that? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I was I was also um, part of that conversation on anti-blackish, and for me as an Asian American coming into that conversation, I was deeply appreciative of the way that the trainer set the stage for us, the the facilitator around understanding the genealogy, if you will, of anti-black racism. That it is the children of racism and of white supremacy. And the way that my mind was just totally blown was that talking about anti-Black racism in the way that of, um, because he compared it to a family, right? So you have anti-Black racism, you have anti-Asian racism, you have xenophobia and all in a a row. And we were all related as children. Um, But what he said that really stuck with me was that you can't attack one of these things, address one of these things and think that everything's going to go away. You have to do everything simultaneously. And so this, that this is where, um, you know, the idea of solidarity um, really is going to be saving all of us. For me as an Asian American coming in and seeing 
the puzzle pieces and how all of us fit together in this um, systemic web of messiness and trauma really helped to lay that foundation. You know, um, we talked um, around this time when this launched about uh, Philadelphia's issue with uh, segregation. Rob, I don't know if you want to jump in here and talk about this, but uh, it's, it's it can be difficult when you are confined to just your neighborhood and you only know those people in your neighborhood and you only know the you know, you're only familiar with your quote unquote, your own people. And then when you brush up against other people and you don't really understand them and you don't know, you, you know, there's that little tension that's there. And that's that can be a problem. And, you know, we need more education and, and more programs like, you know, the anti-Blackish and, and to expose kids and, and even adults, some adults to some of these facts so that they understand where this is all coming from. Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that point up. And I, I think it's so important to talk about the education piece, because so much of the hate that we see directed towards any community is, is based in fear of the unknown. And right. so my, my thought has always been that if we can kind of preempt these kinds of incidents by having more education about all of our communities, then there's a, a good chance that we're going to see a, a decline in, in some of these uh, incidents. But speaking specifically to some of the work that, that we're now doing with the Japan America Society, it's a really exciting for me on a personal level, uh, given my commitment with JACL and civil rights work in general, to now be overseeing a two-year project funded by the Pew Foundation that Japan America Society of Greater Philadelphia is leading to essentially engage the neighborhood residents of Parkside, West Philadelphia, in the daily programming at Shofuso Japanese House and Garden, which is located in West Fairmount Park. And this neighborhood is predominantly African-American, about 90, 95%, depending on which census data you're looking at. And historically, when the house was being operated by Japanese Americans in the 1980s, there was that kind of crossover and there was that connection being made in an era when the same leaders of the JACL were working on the redress movement to achieve reparations from the United States government over the wartime incarceration and a number of African-American colleagues, uh, specifically the Black Congressional Caucus, were among the most vocal advocates for that to happen. So uh, on a, both a national and a local level, there was this real intimate connection that developed during the 1980s. And Shofuso played a part in that, being the one physical location that is related to Japanese culture. Unfortunately, in the last 20 years or so, as the elder generation of Japanese Americans passed on, uh, that connection and that relationship had been lost. And as the neighborhood changed, uh, that kind of history was forgotten as well. So right now, uh, the work that we're doing through Japan America Society is to rekindle those relationships, to talk about both that historical connection locally and this overall a historical narrative that weaves our two communities together. And to that effect, we actually hosted a Black History Month event at the School of the Future on Parkside Avenue on February 26th. And that was a, a big deal, I think, for a Japanese cultural organization to host a Black History Month event, um, working hand in hand with the Parkside neighborhood. My colleague, Michael Birch, is a nearly lifelong resident of Parkside. He publishes the Parkside Journal and is deeply connected to his community. So the two of us programmed this event 
to look at, obviously, focusing on African-American history, but exploring some of the overlaps that the Japanese and Japanese-Americans share. So some of the film programming, for example, focused on segregated troop regiments in World War II between the Tuskegee Airmen and the Black Panther Tank Battalion, also talking about the 442nd All-Japanese-American Unit. Uh, Another program looked at our shared struggles. We actually showed a film called Reparations by John Osaki. He's a Japanese-American filmmaker, and the film was actually about the struggle for Black reparations, but framed from the context of this sort of nationwide dialogue that many Japanese-American activists are having, that it's time for our community to pay back that allyship in full. Um, And so, you know, as JACL and JSGP continue this work, that conversation around uh, HR 40 and the creation of a a congressional commission to study the long-term impacts of African slavery, um, that is part of this conversation. I guess on a a more uh, cultural standpoint, we also have been engaging along some of the pop culture aspects that bring our our communities together, right? And so thinking about music as a real focal point for connection, jazz, hip-hop, funk, these have been instrumental in both Japan as well as the Japanese-American communities over the last hundred years. And just thinking about the impact also that uh, even Japanese technology like Casio without a Casio recorder or some of the the DJ equipment, (laughs) we might not have the same kind of sound systems that we have that have developed both here in the United States and also in the islands and thinking about the popularity of dance hall and reggae in Japan, as well as among Japanese Americans. We see this happening on an organic level. And it's really exciting to be in a position now where we can emphasize this part too. And that's a a big focus in the work that we're gonna be working towards for uh, the Cherry Blossom Festival that's taking place April 8th through the 10th. We're having three days of free public concerts in the park near Shofuso in West Fairmount Park, uh, featuring hip hop, jazz, funk, and percussion instruments and bands, uh, both from local West Philly performers and some of the Japanese American touring musicians nationwide. Wow, this is that's awesome. I love that. More of this. We definitely need more of that, absolutely. Uh, closing things out, Romana Lee, if you could talk a little bit about um, going forward, what are the plans for the balance of the year uh, with regards to the Black and Gold series? And how has it been received by the community? Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, um, so this program has been pretty organic. And and I, while I said that it's been two years in the making, I think Um, we have been responsive to what we're seeing on the ground in the community. And for example, the programming that Rob has already put up in February and we'll be doing in April, that was a huge inspiration for us as a city to say, you know what, there's amazing work that's already been happening. We need to lift it up. And as the city, we want to fly this banner to say that this conversation is critically important and we want to have as many people join us in this work as possible. So while we as the city, we're going to be curating events um, and conversations for the remainder of the year, um, likely in the style of the anti-Blackish program, 
um, virtual programming webinar, we also are inviting community to join us and pitching their own events and their own programs that are in line with the same spirit of black and gold. Um, Because we know that as government, we can't do this work alone. It's truly going to take a partnership um, between community um, leaders and, and, and all of us together to say that we want to shift this around and we want to bring healing and we want to bring, um, we want to bring our city to a better place where we as humans really understand each other and hold deep empathy and, and can reach out and support each other. Right, right. Absolutely. And so, Jeanette, I know that you are going to be continuing to engage the youth in these conversations as well, of course, which is needed. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know one of the things I try to do um, in our office is that you probably won't see me too much because it's about them. So I very much so encourage the Youth Commission, which are our commissioners that are aged 12 to 24, and the Millennial Advisory Committee. Um, We also oversee their work, which are my peers that are about 25 to late 30s, to step out in the forefront and, and continue to engage their peers and community around what they'd like to see this work become. The way I kind of discuss it with Romana and how I see um, the work that she's standing up alongside Rob is like, it's a dinner table. I know Black and Asian communities like to eat. Um, We do. (laughs) It's like the door is open and we're having dinner and we're discussing as a family what's going on. How do we fix it? How's everybody been doing? Check-ins. Yeah but everyone's allowed in, like the door Mm -hmm. is open. So if you are a person of color, if you are a white person in the city, come on in. But it's a masterclass in how we are coming back together. And these are communities that know each other well. I think Rob mentioned that earlier. We know each other very well. So these are not strangers, right? And so sometimes you need to tap back in with your family and say, hey, we've been a little, you ain't been by in a while. Come on by, let's eat. You know what I mean? So that's how we're framing it. And that's how we're framing it for our young people. And and they're excited. I'm excited to partner with some high school students. They're already chomping at the bit. So um, you will see a lot more from us in the next year. Awesome. Ramana, if people want to get more information on this program, where can they find it? You can check out the Mayor's Office of Public Engagement website. Um, We also have a Google form that's available and you can check that out on our social media page, our Facebook page, um, and submit your ideas. You can also submit an email to us, public.engagement at phila.gov. All right. Ramana Lee Akiyama, Director of the Office of Public Engagement, Jeanette Bopadinsi, Director of the City's Office of Youth Engagement, and of course, Rob Busher with the Japan America Society of Greater Philadelphia and also the Japanese American Citizens League. Thank you all so much for your time. All of you are a wealth of information. I appreciate it. The Chinese Immigrant Family Wellness Initiative introduces mental and emotional health as a key component of health for the Chinese immigrant community. Our newsmaker this week is Dr. Esther Hayatong Castillo, who founded the program. Against the backdrop of anti-racism protests and the COVID-19 pandemic, growing tensions between the Black, Brown, and Asian communities have not only been recognized, but also prioritized by local organizers. Organizers like Dr. Esther Castillo, a scholar, educator, and mental health advocate. She's made a point of doing her part to bridge that gap between these communities by putting an emphasis on inclusion. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Now, doctor, you say the work that you do in the community, it's just who you are. I think it's in my blood. I hint to this very diverse, multiracial background that I have. So I am partly Chinese, like my mom's side's uh, Chinese, 
My dad's side is from Nicaragua, and uh, I grew up in Macau. For those of you who don't know, it was a Portuguese colony for over 500 years. And uh, while I was a teenager, Macau had a political transition to become a Chinese territory. Like just the background that I had, uh, it, it was very early on that I got very committed to inclusion and diversity because I, I think it is because no matter where I go, I feel like I don't completely fit in. So I want to create that space where I can fully fit in and I want to create spaces for other people and let them know that they can completely fit in as well. And your work consists of everything from mental health advocacy to education. I do quite a bit of things. And right now, uh, I um, am uh, the programs manager at PCDC, Philadelphia Chinatown Development Corporation. So um, two years ago, uh, um, I founded this mental health program in under PCDC. It's called the Chinese Immigrant Families Wellness Initiative. So that part of my work focuses mostly on destigmatizing the importance of mental health, like promoting awareness of mental health in the Asian immigrant communities. And uh, we do a lot of like intergenerational activities and really promoting healing across generations. So that's part of my work. I also also at my work, I push a lot of the vaccine efforts promoting the COVID-19 vaccination uh, in, at first in the Chinese communities, and then they started to spread to other Asian communities. And uh, we are looking forward to expanding it and join hands with another CDC in in the Southwest, Akana, who serve mostly African and Caribbean immigrant populations to promote vaccination together. Also do a bit of organizing between Black and Asian communities. And this work that you do, it's not only professional, it's also personal because you have a special friendship in your life that's really informed a lot of the things that you do in the community. I got so much passion of it because my best friend is black. And I, I know a lot of people would say, oh, my friends are black, but that's, that's not what I meant. Like she's like my family. Our friendship completely transformed the both of us. And I'm forever grateful for her friendship and her wisdom and her kindness and her love. And she's like, she's like my family because we learn, we both learn so much from our friendship with each other. We want other people to have it. I want other people to have that love. And so uh, um, I also do quite a bit of like Black and Asian organizing. She's an activist herself. So her name's Mary Baxter, Mary Enoch Baxter. And uh, she does activism work around like uh, mass incarceration, women who through her, I'm like learning how she's doing activism and um, we're learning from each other. It's super exciting. So let's talk about the workshops that you're doing. More recently, I also started to like organize workshops for anti-violence and like violence prevention. So we are in the talk with the diversity office at uh, Temple University, which is where I graduated from. I, I basically grew up at Temple. Like, I went to undergrad there. And so I knew that when uh, my workplace asked me to organize some sort of uh, anti-violence workshop between the Asian and Black community, I'm like, I need to go back to Temple. That's my place. That's with my people. So we are in the discussion to organize. Uh, organize some workshops that focus both on like informing each uh, informing the black and Asian communities about each other's histories and how they intertwine and how they're different, right? We're not all the same, but we have similarities and we can learn from each other. In addition to wanting to tapping into that intellectual part and educating people, because I used to be, uh, before I got into activism work, I used to be an educator. I'm very passionate about education. I truly believe that education can change life, but I also 
know that there are limitations with education because it doesn't necessarily get to people's hearts. Teaches people about new information, so it it enriches their minds, but it might not touch people's hearts. And I know that from my organizing work and my community work, I noticed that people get drawn into doing something and into taking action. And when people do that, you need to touch their hearts, but not just their mind. So you need to educate their mind. You need to、uh, feed their mind, but you need to feed their soul. So tell us about your event coming up. What can we expect? Yes. So it's gonna be April eighth.、Uh, it's a Friday from six p.m. to nine p.m. It's gonna be in Rag Valley, right in the Fashion District. It's for Black-owned business. At the edge of, it's just blocks away from Chinatown. We think it is the best location to do that. And there's gonna be、uh, meditation, and there's gonna be kung fu. There's gonna be、uh, DJ, rap music, poems, all of it, and art. You know, so it's just gonna be a really fun event. We're calling it、uh, All in the Family. But you're also putting an emphasis on mental health. Tell us how you're doing that. We are、uh, inviting like therapists,、uh, licensed counselors, like social psychologists, to really confront our own biases and to disrupt those negative thought patterns. Because there's so much racism in our society, so much biases, so much. Stereotypes. And what these workshops are meant to do is use exposure as a means of education, and also healing. Education, exposure, healing. Getting to know each other, develop empathy, develop solidarity. Practice it. This is why by showing up, people practicing it, and they're teaching the mind to do something different. You don't always have to believe in something before you start doing it. You just need to start doing it, and then your mind will start to change. And then you think maybe hate is no longer an option. And this is where your anti-violence work comes in. We have a lot of things that are alike. We also have a lot of things that are different that we need to acknowledge, right? I, I know that in the U.S. we tend to like this kind of believe that oh we're all the same, but we're not all the same,、uh, and it's okay. And that's that's the beauty about it that that we're different, that we can learn from each other. If everyone is the same, then we can't grow. Um, and the、uh, and in terms of the tension, yes, there there is tension, and I think from my organizing efforts, I know that people know about that, and I just want to stress that this tension is no accident. It's not also not any individual's fault. It's very much structured in history and geographies, and I'm saying geographies like I'm talking about like redlinings. I'm talking about these like pockets of spaces. In our city, that are intentionally being disinvested, and how like poverty is created by past policies and and the kind of willingness to turn a blind eye to the development of black neighborhoods. And you see, a lot of this is historically based, right? If you look into history, Asian immigrants, a lot of us came in the '60s. We've been here for a long, long time. You know,、uh, I, my great 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 grandfather actually.、Um, He came to the U.S. in the 19th century, late 19th century. But then there are also more recent immigrants, and a lot of the immigrants that we see in Philly, who come from Asia, came in the 60s and the 70s up until the 80s, and 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 it is very important to understand the context in which immigrants come to America, their economic background when they come, and their options when they come. And so, when when you think about a lot of、uh, Asian immigrants,、uh, when they first came here, they don't really speak the language. The only place where they can settle down, people usually go to Chinatown first, or they go to their families. We're talking about these people who have some money, not a lot, so they can't really. When they think about、uh, how to when. It, 
When people think about Asian immigrants and Asian immigrant communities, people don't think about our relationship with racism, but it exists and is very prominent in our life. And it's so prominent that it creates a very limited worldview of what life can look like in America. And so like people do that by going to Chinatown to live and work, to, to eat, to avoid racism, to avoid discrimination. So a lot of the tactics is really from the Asian immigrant mindset is how do I avoid racism, right? And people do that by, they, they're thinking that, okay, I don't really speak English, so maybe I can't do a lot of things. They look at other immigrants and what they have done before, right? They open up small businesses. That's something they can do, right? They can learn easy restaurant English while raising my family, while not being oppressed and discriminated, right? Because I heard other stories where immigrants went to like factories to work or they work in some of these like mainstream stores. They they experience a lot of nasty stuff and they want to avoid that. And then the, then the immigrant parents want their kids to avoid that. And so, so like, so like when the immigrants came over and the family said that, okay, uh, we have this, we, we want to open this restaurant or open up this store. And the only option usually is in the black neighborhood because rent is cheap. Land is cheap. Everything is cheaper and everything is cheaper for a reason, right? For all these historical reasons why black neighbors, neighborhoods have been, this invested very intentionally for many, many, many years. Uh, and, and that's something that the government has put policy to support that. Um, and, and so for the, from the immigrant perspective, they move into these black neighborhoods and uh, they don't speak the language. They don't know the culture. They don't know the history because the black history is not being taught. It's a school. And so they came in and then all they see is the TV and the media and the media portrays black people as dangerous, right? So then there is this fear. Like, I don't understand. I'm in a new country. I don't speak the language. So like, there, so this kind of conflict is designed. I don't know how there would not be any conflict when you put people in those kind of situations. And how does the work that you do really offset what we were just talking about? This is hard work. And then I've talked to so many people and then there are cynics. They were like, it's been like that for years. What do you think you can do to change that, right? So there are a lot of those negative, you know, thoughts, but I don't let myself drown in those thoughts. And I think my first step was really to expose myself to different people. I know it seems very cheesy, cliche, but really like you need to listen. I need to listen. I need to learn. I need to respect people who are different from me. And for me, it's easier because I come from such a diverse background. Like my family is like different races, so I'm used to that. So for example, I had this really interesting conversation when I was organizing this, well, I am organizing this uh, Black and Asian Solidarity event in April. And then, uh, and actually this event has been in the making for six months or maybe longer. <laughs> and, and, um, the, the reason why it has, has to be so long was because when we first had the idea to uh, do some sort of uh, Asian and Black organizing on the ground, I was doing some community work and then I got in touch with uh, Carla Ballard. Uh, she is the founder of Ying, uh, which is an app for group sharing and skill sharing. She has, when we became friends and then she talked about she has like Filipino families. And it's so interesting, like all these people that are mixed, a lot of these people that I that want to do this work are mixed and they have families from both sides. So that, that was interesting. And then, and then uh, when we wanted to throw an event, we just didn't feel like there was this, we don't have enough energy to support such an event. It feels, if it, it doesn't feel authentic to do it. 
it feels forced, if that makes sense. It feels very forced. We talked and then we were like, okay, we don't want to do like a big scale event because it feels forced. It feels performative. It doesn't feel like it's rooted in something real. So we were like, let's build something real. And then to build something real takes a long time because you're talking about building relationship with intention. Building relationship with, with intention is the work. Right. The event is just the, the event is just a, like an illustration of the work, but it is not the work. The work is meeting with each other, talking to each other, building a relationship with each other, talking about our issues together, telling our stories to each other. And so we started meeting every month. We would have like small gathering. We would go to like a black owned restaurant. And the next month we go to an Asian owned restaurant. We talk to the, the restaurant owners about what we're doing. We, you know, we, we, try, to, we try to create um, an environment where everybody is intentional about building this solidarity and this alliance. And through talking to people, through uh, doing this work, and at the same time, we see how other people see us, right? Because like, I remember in December, we had a uh, happy hour event at the Booker's. Uh, restaurant in West Philly and uh, we occupied this like corner of the restaurant and then here we are like a group of I think like 25 people and half Asian half black and I saw the people like who are not part of our group looking into our group they looked at us like what's going on like this like Asian and black people like having fun together like that's a scene that I don't normally see on tv (laughs) You know, we had so much fun. We just want to have fun with each other. And we want to learn what it feels like to be in the presence of each other and to have joy together, right? Because there's so much negativity. There's so much hurt, so much trauma in our history. And we might not be in a position where we are ready to open up the wound, to talk about it. But I think we're at the stage where we want to be with each other more and let's create some fun time, let's have some joy together. And maybe the next step is like, okay, we have a relationship now. Let's talk, you know, within our family. And a lot of the impetus for all of this work comes from the fact that a lot of the people doing the work are also mixed. And this is partly their personal passion. One of our uh, biggest organizer in our group, she's Blasian. So mm-hmm. her her uh, mom is Filipino and her dad, uh, I think he's from uh, Con- the Congo. Seeing how cultures fuse together. Our ancestors asked ask us to do this work. They're demanding <laughs> us to do this work. Now building the bridge between the black, brown and Asian communities is important. Why? Why in particular for Philadelphia? I think we occupy a very specific set of spaces and we have we possess a very unique set of privileges that we don't have. Uh, like Asian don't have what black communities have and black communities ha- uh, don't have what Asian communities have. And I want to be specific about it. So um, for a lot uh, in, in a lot of spaces in the Asian uh, American community, I see a strong desire of being seen, being heard. Right. And uh, for a lot of Asian uh immigrants and also Asian Americans, we feel like we are being portrayed as the perpetual foreigners. So, uh, and also that very uh, limited space that we put ourselves in to avoid racism also uh, kind of comes back to us when, when, uh, when we, uh, when we recognize and notice that we don't have the cultural capital to tell people about our stories, to, uh, 
tell people about our needs. And we're not very articulate about that. We're not very articulate about our needs, you know. And um, and 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 so like I when when we look into the black communities and for for the years of you know since the civil rights movement and even before you know like all these years of black leadership fighting for more rights and I think the Asian American community need that guidance. We don't have the ancestral knowledge to fight racism. We simply don't. Like our coping mechanism has been to turn a blind eye, pretend we don't see it, create our own community and avoid it at all costs. And then when I talk to the Black communities uh, and they look at us and see our economic privileges. And I truly, truly want that the Asian community would be more giving in terms of sharing our wealth and redistributing wealth across our communities. And so we can share those skill sets. Uh, We can share the skills, we can share the wealth, we can share our abundance together. And I think that's why it's very important for us to build with each other, because not only we can build wealth and build our neighborhoods, but we can also grow as people. And that's why we're here, right? Thank you so much for being here, doctor. After speaking with Dr. Castillo, to get an on-the-ground perspective, I decided to visit a few Philadelphia neighborhoods. I went to Germantown, Chinatown, and Rittenhouse to hear a few points of view from Philadelphians on the topic. And the people I talked to didn't hold back. Meet Preska, John, Sheck, and Edward. What do you think the issues really are between the Black, Brown, and Asian communities? Is this something that we can fix? I think anti-Blackness in general needs to be addressed. That's the underlying issue with almost everything that we're facing in this country. There are instances where um, Black people can be prejudiced against Asian people as well. Need to be aware of what we're doing, what we're saying, how we can help each other. Now, John, you're in Chinatown. You're looking around. Do you think there's any way that we can bridge these two communities? Like in terms of bridging the different community, I think they have to have like association, bridge two different cultures. Exposure. Yeah, exposure came from a different culture background. I'm from Malaysia. I'm from one Asian country. I mean, Malaysia is it's, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not by a single race, so we have three different races. Shaq, now you're from Germantown. From your experience as a black man, what are your thoughts about the black, brown, and Asian relationship? Are there tensions, and can this be improved? Of the black and Asian dynamic, both sides get a messed up version of where we live, you know, where we're from in America. I feel like we're both minorities, but me wearing my hoodie right now with a do-rag, but I'm definitely a college-educated person. I know I'm look that different. Like, if I was wearing a suit walking down the street, I look different. You know, with certain people, it don't matter if they wear in a suit or if they wear in a house clothes, they look the same. But we've been, been judged how we look since the beginning of the time. If we looked at by our skin color first before we looked at like by who we are. So we always fight in that battle of, of, proving, of, proving, of, of proving a point. <laughs> now, Edward, you're an Asian-American who's grown up with a lot of different influences. What are your thoughts on the topic? I think people need to educate themselves on, on history. Uh, I grew up in a black-brown community. I think the problem that we find ourselves in is that we don't speak to other people and we don't experience other things, immersing yourself in other cultures. So that's the best way to be able to bridge that gap. That can have a profound impact on how you view people. So that's the best way, I think, to be able to bridge that gap. Where do you think the problems stem from exactly? Ignorance, but then also with the algorithms, with social media, uh, the media that's being broadcasted and being you know, earmarked towards you, you get sucked into your own beliefs and then the things that you believe in it's, it's self-fulfilling in, in terms of what you research is going to back up what you think and believe. Whether it's right or wrong. Right. So you should be objective in everything that you read and be critical in what you're hearing and, and thinking. Even if it supports what you think, be critical of it. 
and we'll be all better off and be more caring. Love each other. It's obvious everyone thinks, of course, there's improvement to be made, but it can be done. For more information on the All in the Family event, go to the KYW News Radio website. For Bridging Philly, I'm Charity Howard. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Now, it's still Women's History Month, and it's all about the women who lead our city, the history makers, innovators, and game changers. This week, we're proud to shine a light on Carol Wong. She's certainly been a game changer in all of the above in the Chinatown community for more than three decades. Miss Wong is bridging Philly by providing immigrant and Asian American communities with education and support they need to thrive. Here's more. Nearly three decades ago, Carol Wong noticed a need in the Chinatown community. I saw the need for a preschool program to help immigrants, children that were English language learners. That was when she started the Chinatown Learning Center, a bilingual program that supports children three and older. But the job goes far beyond just providing child care. That's what we want. We want them to have a really strong, solid foundation, positive self-esteem, confidence, and just the ability to positively communicate. You know, a lot of times immigrants are very shy and withdrawn because they are afraid, oh, maybe I'm not saying it right or I don't know how to say it. So we work on those skills. Since its founding, Wong has been empowering immigrant and Asian-American communities through education, connection and advocacy. You know, it's not just educating the children. It was really supporting and helping the parents to know what to do, how to do it and to know that we're there to support them. During the height of the pandemic, when they were forced to close, she kept busy by finding ways to continue supporting families through virtual classes, food drives, and more. We have a lot of families that lost their jobs just because of the pandemic. Businesses closed, things just stopped working, you know, factories just stopped. It was just really hard on the parents. As COVID restrictions near an end, she's hopeful that the community she loves can bounce back. Uh, And more people are recognizing that it's not just a place with restaurants. We're a community of families, of businesses, of people who have been here forever. Wong says as a small business owner, a leader and a mother, nothing is more rewarding than watching her students grow from toddlers to thriving citizens, thanks to the impact of her center. I see the different programs that are available to the families now, um, whether it's learning English, um, understanding why it's important to vote, helping them get citizenship, helping them navigate, like I said, the educational system. And parents are very appreciative and grateful. They say, oh, thank you so much. In fact, I've had parents come back to me in the past and just thank us because their children were doing so well. Either they graduated college or went to college or have a great job and they come back and they say, you know, thank you so much for taking care of them. To learn more about Ms. Carol Wong and the Chinatown Learning Center or any of our other many endeavors in leading the Chinatown community forward, you can find a full story on our website, kywnewsradio.com. Just look for Philly Rising. 
Now, you probably know what I'm going to say next, but please listen up. If you know someone in your community who's making a difference, no matter how big or seemingly small or somewhere in between, please reach out to me. I would love for you to point us in the direction of our next Philly Rising Changemaker. You can reach me on Twitter at ARLeeOnAir. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.